You're listening to Lane Powell Live, www.lanepowell.com. It wouldn't be a legal presentation if we didn't include a disclaimer. We want to note that the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. All information, content, and materials available today are for general informational purposes only. Legislation and regulations are always subject to change, so we recommend that you always check with your legal counsel to ensure that any advice you receive is current. You'll find our full disclaimer at our website, lanepowell.com. Thank you for joining us today. It's another episode of Lane Powell Live, and we are especially excited to celebrate Pride in June. We have many developments and accomplishments to celebrate this month. However, we cannot rest on our laurels. With 100 anti-trans bills being introduced in 2021 alone, we can plainly see that the fight for equality is nowhere near over. We are excited to introduce to you our special guest, Tristan Reese, an established thought leader, educator, and speaker who focuses on issues of racial and gender justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Lane Powell's Dustin O'Quinn also joins us for this conversation. Tristan offers vital context for these current battles in addition to covering some of the pro-trans advances sweeping the nation. Recent developments include gender-neutral driver's licenses and more inclusive health policies. Let's hear what Tristan has to say. Thinking about the legal aspect of it, Tristan, I mean, lately, just in the last few months, there has been a significant amount of what we're calling anti-trans bills um, in, in state legislatures all over the United States. So this popped up overnight, seemingly really not in, on the same path that we feel we've been on. It feels like we've made some progress. Um, maybe that's because of the way that the cultural war and the legal war have interacted with each other. But now all of a sudden, legally, we're seeing over 100 anti-trans bills. So could you talk a little bit about some of those anti-trans bills that we've seen why they've popped up, kind of what's going on with them, what the outcomes have been so far, and what that means for the, the present and near future for the community. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love that you seem to have some awareness that maybe it seems like they have popped up right now, but maybe not. And so just like spoiler alert, they, these are not new. In fact, uh, one of my most embarrassing tattoos, which is visible, so I can show you all, is this one on my forearm, which is 1856. And that was the very first, that was the ordinance number for the very first trans specific ballot measure I ever worked on. So I come from political organizing. I come from grassroots political organizing in the LGBTQ um, arena. I was uh, the field director in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And it was the very, very first time that a trans specific ballot measure was up for the vote by the public, up for a public vote. Previously, we had kind of tried to like just like stick trans people in with a larger LGBTQ message and hope that no one noticed. But for some time in the early 2000s, especially when there was pushback on those bills, non-discrimination bills, for example, some of the powers that be, which you sort of alluded to just now in the LGBTQ community were like, 
okay, well, what if we like take the most controversial people out, trans people, and we just pass a bill just for gay and lesbian people? We'll come back for you guys later. Like we totally promise we will. Do not worry. And then they never did. So we ended up having this patchwork of protections in states all over the US, including New York State, where they would pass on discrimination bills that were sexual orientation only. They would call them SONDA, which is sexual orientation, non-discrimination amendment, or et cetera. And so we ended up with this patchwork of protections only for gay people. Only some states had trans, most didn't. And so in this particular tiny city, Kalamazoo, Michigan, yes, there really is a Kalamazoo, the city council decided, well, we only have statewide for gay people. We don't think it's right that trans people should be able to legally be fired from their job, kicked out of their house, and have access to medical care, kicked out of school. Like that doesn't seem right. That's not in alignment with our city values. So like, let's just quietly add gender identity to that. Well, you can't do much quietly when it comes to trans people, unfortunately. And basically what happened is anti-trans forces, and this is not like some conspiracy theory, this is like organizations who were specifically founded to make it harder for transgender people to live our lives. They saw that this was happening and made it a national issue. So like the Heritage Foundation, Focus on the Family, some of these large organizations, many of which are situated in Michigan, they saw this and they said, let's make this our cause celeb. So instead of quietly just like adding gender identity to an existing bill, what happened was uh, money was funneled into Kalamazoo, Michigan to get enough signatures to put this on the ballot. So it was the very first time that there was a public vote on trans issues. And so they really threw everything at this. And this is, again, this is in 2009. So this is not last year. This is at the sort of the beginning of this. And they really wanted to see what, what's the worst that we can do, truly. Like, what can we get away with when we talk about transgender people? And they funneled all of that into Kalamazoo, Michigan. And as an example, what these giant national organizations did is they made flyers that had the names, the birth names, and real pictures of transgender people who had tried to get access to some of the things that everyone else has. So, for example, there was a transgender woman who wanted to join a women's gym. They denied her access, so she sued them, right? She's like, I believe I have a right to be here. They put out flyers and sent it out to every single voter in this city, having the real photos and birth names, so male names, next to these transgender women's faces. You know, a trans woman had been fired from her job for transitioning at a university. They, they, they put her story on here, and then they mailed it out to every single voter in Kalamazoo. They created these commercials that have, maybe you've seen them now because they're famous, but that started in Kalamazoo with like some sketchy dude with glasses and a hat, like sneaking into a girl's restroom and then like showing like little girls going in and then this sketchy dude going in as if somehow that's not illegal already. And as if somehow that's what's going to happen. They tested everything in Kalamazoo and on some like just desperate, brutal night after we've been working 80, 90 hour weeks, going door to door fundraising, you know, recruiting volunteers and talking to voters. I like desperately said, if we win this campaign and I'll get a tattoo, right? I, I, it was just really stupid. And then we won, right? We actually won by the single largest margin of any LGBT ballot measure that had ever been put up for a vote. We won by 62%. And we actually overperformed in black neighborhoods, which was really great because what the right has done is they have successfully pitted LGBT issues against 
civil rights issues, issues of racial justice and equality. They have done that intentionally. Those campaign plans and strategies have been leaked. We have seen it. It has happened very transparently. And so it was really important, you know, that we had built really strong relationships with the NAACP, which is huge in Michigan and, and was huge in Kalamazoo, worked with the Black Student Union at the universities. Like we had worked and we overperformed in those neighborhoods. Um, so we were really proud of that. And then, of course, uh, the, the drunken uh, election night after we found out we'd won, all of my staff were like, so when are you going to get your tattoo? So 100% hungover. I headed to the, uh, the the only tattoo parlor in Kalamazoo, and, and about six of us got matching tattoos, which have not aged well. Uh, <laughs> but these are not new. You know, we we've been fighting them since at least 2009. Before that, in many many different ways. But it's we're, what we're really looking at is whack-a-mole. You you they pop up someplace. You defeat them. They pop up somewhere else. They defeat them. They pop up somewhere else. And what the, where their efforts had gone up until 2015 was largely after losing so badly in Kalamazoo, they were like, oh, okay, all right, we can't pick on trans people in this way. Let's go after the marriage fight. And that was the that was really the big fight between 2009 and 2015. And so we got Proposition 8 in California. I was a field director in, in California. I ran all of West LA, Culver City, all the way down to um, nearly to Long Beach, all the way up to Malibu. I was like, yes, thank you for giving me Malibu. It means I got to like literally phone bank in Malibu, which was gorgeous. Um, and we lost and we lost brutally in, uh, in California. We, even though we out fundraised the, 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 the opposition, they were able to successfully mobilize in, in 2008 and we lost on marriage over and over and over again until Supreme Court comes in 2015. They rule in June of 2015 that marriage is legal. By November of 2015, we're seeing anti-trans campaigns nationwide. I mean, within months, it's whack-a-mole, right? Okay, we got them on the marriage thing, great, trans stuff pops up. And unfortunately, the trans movement just, we just hadn't had the same level of support that the marriage movement had. The marriage movement had billions of dollars in education, understanding how do we talk to, how we frame this? Is it rights and responsibilities? Is it love and commitment? Is it the, the financial business aspect? And then by literally 2016, Houston, we start to see anti-trans bathroom bills pop up. And they pop up all over the country 2016. They're everywhere. And they only win in one place, right? Houston, thank you so much for taking care of that. It's only North Carolina where they win. Everywhere else, business comes out, right? Everyone fights back on this bathroom thing. So the bathroom thing kind of goes away. Then we get Trump, the Trump era, and everything just goes haywire, right? But now that things have less are less go, going a little bit less haywire, we're seeing these bills pop up again in the healthcare, working with youth, and in sports. So we've stopped the bathroom thing. People have realized it does not matter what the genitalia of the person peeing in the stall next to you that you can't even see is. That's largely, mm. but now we're like, but what about the children? And now we're even seeing people protesting in front of gender treatment clinics the same way that they do for abortion clinics. And what we're seeing is conservative legislators will literally go to conferences, CPAC, things like that, and they will get a bill, an anti-trans bill in their hands and then they'll take it back. And this is not coming from their constituents. No one is coming to them saying, I'm worried that my daughter might play softball against a, a trans athlete and she might lose. That's never happened. 33 states, we have these sports bills. Not a single one has a trans athlete in them, none. Completely hypothetical, but it's whack-a-mole. Try one thing, 
doesn't work, try another thing, doesn't work, try another thing. Some of them are really going to take hold and we have to pay attention to them and they're, they're particularly dangerous and others were like, eh, okay, keep trying. Tristan, I, I really like your uh, whack-a-mole analogy because I think it's important for, for everyone to know that last point you, you just made about, I've been following the anti-trans sports bills and knew that they did not come organically from like a trans person who applied for an intramural team. But there, is, there are so many political groups behind this who, as you said, just transparently have picked up this fight and have educated and funded this fight. And they went from trans to marriage, back to trans, to bathrooms, and now it's sports and healthcare. So I wonder if you could speak to uh, where do we think that's going to go? I mean, it seems early and also, as you said, not early at the same time. So what's next in this in this game? And, and specifically, are we on the right track to educate and fundraise to continue to fight this one battle within the war? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because it's very much what we were seeing on the left in the Trump era, which people were like, well, don't get distracted. No, no, we like have to get distracted. Right, we have to be able to do all the things we have to be able to make sure that the ACLU's fight against some of these bills against trans kids that they're well that they're well supported. And then when people are doing pro bono law, if this is something you care about, this is where we, you have to put your hours into this like you, you, these are important. We cannot let them win these fights. This is life and death for these trans kids. I mean, it really is. And the culture stuff really matters too. You know, you have to be reading books and listening to stories and talking to your kids. Like we have to be able to do all the things. And I hope that we're continuing to be proactive. I mean, not to toot my own horn here, but like I've been talking about this trans youth and health thing for years. I have said the fertility aspect specifically because I come from the reproductive justice lens. I have been saying for a long time, we have got to figure out trans youth and reproductive justice. We have to be on the forefront of figuring out medically, how are we supporting young people to figure out their fertility, their bodies, their reproductive possibilities, so that no one can come back and say, you're making trans kids infertile. We can't, like, we can't do that. You know, so I've known for a long time, that's not So um, that, that's one of the things that I think has been a huge thing is thinking about the reproductive justice aspects and I think fundamentally it's about pushing positive trans narratives so that some of these, this fear mongering around, well, you're letting kids transition, which is not even, that's not accurate. And then they're gonna be miserable or they might change their mind. Like, that's just not true. You know, the detransition myth, like it's a, it's a myth for a reason. Like every, every person's on their own individual journey and like do 1% of all trans people ever regret transitioning largely because it's, it's scary to navigate the world as a trans person. Sure. But the 99% of the people, come on, generally speaking is giving trans people life affirming care going to save their lives and make them happier. Yeah, totally. And the more we can push those stories and not just show up when something bad happens, but show up when great things are happening. That's one of the big things that's going to really help proactively shape what's coming next. But healthcare, healthcare is that's going to continue to be a big fight for a long time. I think the thing that the other thing that's coming, so I can just just if I can prognosticate, is about trans families. It's about it's about trans families and us having kids. And again, it's going to seem that that I'm saying that because 
that's my life. And I see it. I like, I, I see them coming. I just did a piece for USA Today last week, which is about inclusive language in, in birth spaces and it's coming. There, we have a lot of um, adoption related issues that are really outdated for immigration or gay marriage. So I know I, I see it too. Interesting. We have a couple more questions for yeah, you, buddy. but we cannot ignore a, a, just a really pertinent question that we got from the, the audience uh, right now. And because we're talking about specifically these bills, which are so focused on children, um, I don't want to throw a curveball to you, but I know that you've encountered this issue before. There's so many reports lately about uh, children who are identifying as trans or non-binary. Uh, and some of these reports focus on just how young those children are when they tell their parents. And so there's so many different ways that you could handle that. There's so many different bad ways that you can handle that. Uh, and we don't want to, to give black and white advice per se, but do you have any resources about at least how parents can have these conversations with their children when a child tells their parents that they have an, a gender identity or an orientation identity that's different than maybe what was assigned at birth or mm -hmm. what the parent expected? Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer the question two ways because I think rooted in this is again, a talking point that has been really propagated by the right. And it is this idea, or I'll say the anti-trans right. I don't want to put everybody who has a different political ideology than me into one box. I don't want to do that. But people who are explicitly working to push an anti-trans agenda have really pushed this narrative that somehow, just as, you know, yesterday, my toddler made me call him Brainiac all day because that's his favorite Batman character, right? They're pushing this narrative that somehow, similarly, a toddler might dress up in his sister's um, Elsa costume, that somehow we're all going to label this kid as transgender, right? They're pushing a little bit of this ideology. And so just one thing there is when we think about trans youth, right, there is a difference between someone like trying something on and like expressing themselves and having fun and being creative. That's in a pretty different category than a young person who is demonstrating three, three things around their gender identity, insistent, consistent, persistent. That's what doctors look for. That's what therapists look for. That's what every single person who is working with a trans young person is looking for. Is their gender identity insistent? Have they insisted that this is who they are? Does it show up in every realm of their life? Has it shown up for a long period of time, right? Is it an insistent thing? Are they, is it taking over? You know, does it, is it, does it show up everywhere? That's the first one. Next is, is it consistent? Not, oh my God, I overheard my little girl playing with their friend on the playground and she wanted to pretend to be Spider-Man. Is she trans? No, no, no. Has it consistently shown up in creative play at school when they do writing? Like, is it consistent across all realms of their life? And is it persistent? Do they say it over and over and over again? And so that's the first thing is like, people think the bar is very low for a child to be considered transgender. I can tell you it's not, it's very high. How do I know? Because trans teenagers DM me on Instagram being like, I've been telling my parents for six years, I'm a boy, no one believes me. And so the bar is very high. And in fact, my father is an endocrinologist and, and he has told me there are some transgender youths, for example, they may, they may be a person with a developmental disability. 
and the doctors do not feel that they are yet able to exhibit all three things. The bar is high. And then we get into like disability justice and access, but that's just the first thing I want to say is sometimes there's a misunderstanding that a kid dresses up in a dress one day and everyone is like, oh, they're trans and then they let them transition or whatever. So that's the first thing is like the bar is, the bar is actually pretty high for, for anything to happen. And then I guess the second part of that is like, no one is giving sex changes to kids. I mean, like, come on, let's just like apply the, let's just use the smart part of our brains here, right? Who is writing those articles? Is this a reputable outlet? Do they have a different agenda? That's just, that's just not the case. Maybe at most a young person and by young, I do mean like, like five to 12. Sure. Grow your hair out, cut your hair, go by a different name. Okay. We're talking about social transition and those, none of that is permanent. And I have still yet to find an adult who is not trans, who is like, I really wish that my parents hadn't let me explore all aspects of who I was when I was a kid. That's just never happened. No parent, no kid, you know, has ever grown up to be like, mom, I wish you hadn't let me grow up my hair that year. Of course not. The opposite is what we see. I wish that you had let me figure out who I was and just let me figure it out. And that gets to the second, second part of that question, which is as parents, honestly, I think about myself as a parent, like I'm the guardrails on the freeway. That's it. Uh, or like bowling. I'm just the guardrails, you know? And so I really encourage when I work with parents of tr trans kids or just gender creative kids, just sure. What, what do you want us to call you today? No problem. And just neutral. Don't go so far, you know, don't be like, oh yeah, let's go to pride. I'm a P flag mom. Just dial it back. Right? So don't go too far in any one direction. Just sure. No problem. And just let them figure it out and don't try to push them in any one way or the other. The more you tamp it down. The more they're going to react, the more you like rah, rah, the more they're going to react to that too. So you're just like, no problem. What do you need? Give them that freedom. Let them figure it out. Eventually they're going to settle into something. Probably. Maybe that's, you know, I've given it a lot of thought. And, you know, I, I do want to start to figure out like, what, what am I going to do when I hit puberty? You can start thinking about those things. And then there are like puberty suppressants, which are also temporary. None of this is permanent. Or they're like, you know, I just decided like, that was just like a fun thing. I just wanted to be Elsa for a few months, but I'd like to go back to being Steven. Okay. Right. Just give them a line, but let them figure it out. Keep the relatives from saying anything really troubling or problematic to them, right? Protect them the same as you would any other thing. Just, you know, let them figure it out <laughs> and make sure that you're not letting anybody reinforce this narrative that isn't true, which is that we're doing irreversible harm to kids. What we know is you can't bully a person who's trans out of being trans. You just can't. No culture has ever figured out. You can bully them into hating themselves. Sure. Watch how that turns out. Not great. And when we look at the data around trans experiences and outcomes, when we look at suicidality, incarceration, drug abuse, drug use and abuse, homelessness, every single negative outcome that we can possibly measure can be radically altered by one thing is family support. Every single metric radically changes with family support. And so it's like you can either have a trans kid or a dead kid.
which would you prefer? Or you can have a trans kid or a kid who doesn't feel loved and supported. Which would you prefer? You know? And so I hate to put it in that stark of terms, but sometimes that helps parents be like, okay, I'm just gonna let them figure it out. I don't want to do any harm here. It's not gonna hurt them. And certainly, Dustin, I think you could agree that we need more men in this world who feel better about the parts of them that might be a little bit feminine. So if they've dressed up as Elsa when they were a kid, they grow up to be a straight dude, great. That's probably gonna make them a better husband, you know? <laughs> Excellent. That was so that was so helpful, Tristan. Thanks for joining us today, Tristan. I have attended past sessions that Tristan presented at my workplace, and he always seems to keep audiences engaged and inspired to manifest change. I invite you to visit his website to learn more about Tristan's services and offerings. Visit collaborate.consulting. You will find a link to Tristan's website in the description of this episode. Bye for now. The lawyers of Lane Powell serve as trusted counsel, advocates, and advisors to clients who rely on us to resolve complex business, litigation, and regulatory challenges. We invite you to subscribe to periodic legal updates relevant to your business, written and published by lawyers from Lane Powell. To sign up, visit lanepowell.com forward slash subscribe and choose any topics that are relevant to your industry or business. Thank you for joining our discussion today. 